0: 1, 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as we so that he so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his of his glory in him also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of salvation the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise of holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory
1: Good morning to you. My name is Kurt. I'm a pastor here at this church. Appreciate uh, you coming. Hope you're healing up. I'm feeling better. I was sick the last couple of weeks. Hope you're feeling better as well. And if you're not quite yet, let's be praying for each other. Just a heads up. Uh, a lot of you know uh, Jay and Andy Nasato. Uh, Andrea is her name, but I call her Andy, rightly or wrongly. But uh, Andrea's uh, father passed away this last, or mother, I'm sorry, passed away this last week, and she is with her mom in Ontario at this time, so please be praying for Andrea and her family, and obviously Andrea's dad, uh, who survives uh, his wife, Uh, she's been a pastor's wife for a lot of years, and uh, in some ways, being a pastor's wife is harder than being a pastor because uh, often the pastor's wife is being targeted by the church, sadly. But anyhow, you can only imagine what she's been through. But please be praying for uh, Andrea's family, and for Jay and the kids, and, uh, and also uh, Andrea's dad as well. Uh, why don't we pray and uh, ask God to prepare us for uh, the receiving of his word today. Father, we thank you for your grace and peace that come to us through Jesus. We worship you for giving us so much in Christ, for choosing us as your kids before the foundation of the world. Thank you for the great inheritance that you give us in Christ, for your Holy Spirit who is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing that future inheritance with you. Uh, give us a sense of the wonder and the magnitude and the bigness of your purpose, which is to unite all things in Jesus and, and to at least a grasp some of what that means. Empower me to speak your words today for your glory and credit alone. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I'm always excited on the first sermon of a new sermon series. That's how fickle I am, I suppose. But it's new, it's different, and I'm excited. And we're getting into the book of Ephesians, going through it verse by verse. It's going to take us a few weeks. And the title of this sermon series in the book of Ephesians is this. It's a manifesto (coughs) for the church. This book of the Bible is really a manifesto for the church. Now, what is a manifesto exactly? Well, here's the definition. A manifesto is a published declaration of the intentions, of the motives, of the views, of the issuer, and that is the author, person that comes up with a manifesto. And the issuer, the author, can be an individual, uh, can be a group of people, can be a political party, it can be a government. And in Ephesians' case here, this book of the Bible uh, is God's published declaration for us of his intentions, his motives, his views of the church, the church at large, the universal church, and also the individual local churches within the universal church, and here we are as Mercy Hill Church as a local expression of the universal church. You know, there are very sadly a lot of negative views and opinions, negative ideas about the church. You know, the church has some bags and some deserve, some not. But anyhow, the view <coughs> a lot of people, excuse me, in our culture believe the church is pointless, like Why bother with church? The church just seems to be full of all these judgmental, angry Christians. They're very self-righteous. They think they're better than the rest of the world. And they would say, you know, the church really, we don't need people like that, really. like The church doesn't make any difference in the world. And let's just get rid of it. Like, Let's take away all the tax benefits and let's start making them pay property tax. And let's just get rid of the church, actually. And there's people that believe that, especially here in B.C., And Quebec, more than any other part of Canada, there's a real bias against the church. Again, some churches deserve it. Some churches really blow it. They are nowhere near anything close to what God has designed the local church to be. But I would say, by and large, most churches are doing okay, at least okay, doing pretty good. And when you look at God's intent and his manifesto, if you will, his design for the church at large and individual churches like us, um, and you see the big picture, your mind is blown. I hope your imagination is captured. Uh, God's purpose for the church is much bigger, much greater, much better than anything we could try to sort of come up with or conjure up in our own strength or in our own minds. It's truly amazing, God's design for the church. Maybe you've had a hard time historically, maybe currently. Maybe you're kind of burnt out on coming here. You know, Maybe you're on the setup and takedown team and you're just like, I can't take it anymore. Uh, maybe you're in the kids' ministry, I can't take it anymore. You're feeling a little bit of fatigue. You're feeling like you've lost the fire for the church and why bother? Why, why do I invest my time, my energy, my, my finances and my donations to the church? Well, I hope that this series might sort of recapture or maybe capture for the first time the wonder of God's original design for the local church. And it's, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty beautiful, in my opinion. All right. What I want to do now is give you a little bit of background and context of the book of Ephesians. Uh, am, I only, am I the only one, by the way, in the room that's feeling like, okay, here we are. It's the, hot, the room is hot. Okay. I have communicated with the powers that be to turn down the heat very forcefully. It clearly is not getting through. Okay. So don't blame me. Don't shoot me. Don't shoot anybody, actually. Um, But anyhow, so I'll talk to them again and see what happens. takes a while. You know, there's layers of bureaucracy that these things have to work through. The background of the book of Ephesians (coughs) is this. I've shared some info about the background on that sermon insert that Scott has in his hand right there. You can read for on your own time, but I'm going to do some broad strokes of that description. This book of the Bible, of Ephesians, is less uh, less a book than it is a very long letter, a long email, a very long text, for example. And Paul writes this letter to the various churches in the region of the ancient city of Ephesus. And he writes this in and around 62 AD. And the Apostle Paul is the author and the writer of it. And he actually ends up writing most of the New Testament of the Bible. He writes thirteen books of the of the New Testament. And he is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit to speak these words, and very often Paul had a scribe who would write down the words that he was saying vocally, and that's pretty amazing in and of itself. Uh, interestingly, Paul wrote this book of Ephesians when he is, he is most likely under house arrest in the ancient city of Rome. In fact, most of Paul's writings in the Bible were written while under duress in prison, which now we can see God's purpose in allowing Paul to be incarcerated for a good portion of his later life, okay? He was in prison. God allowed this to happen so that Paul, he could basically get, pin Paul down because Paul was a man of action. This guy was planting churches, traveling all the time. So the way in which he could get Paul in one place and to focus and not go any other way or other direction and to write most of the New Testament was to to allow him to be incarcerated. That's amazing. Um you know, and thank speed to God that He was, because now we can learn from and benefit from this book of Ephesians and the other twelve books of the New Testament that he wrote. You know often we we ask God like, "Why God, why are you allowing me to go through this trial and this difficult time and this suffering, and without minimizing that, obviously that is real and it is very difficult um, It's possible God might have you in your time of suffering and trial for a purpose that only makes sense further down the road. For Paul, now he gets it. He's in heaven. Now he gets why God allowed him to be in prison, was to give us most of the New Testament so that we could learn from it and learn God's ways and ideas. Now, let's move on. There are two basic main themes that we see in this book of Ephesians. The first theme is that Christ has reconciled all creation to himself and to God. Secondly, Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another in his church. You know, we enjoy being a multicultural church, and I'm glad we are because our neighborhood is multicultural. So now we can reach multiple cultures in our own city. And this is actually God's design. And we see it was always God's design to reach people from all nations, not just the Jews, not just certain people, um, but all nations around the globe. And that's what our church is, and this is a good healthy expression of God's vision for his church. Uh, Now, moving on, the ancient city of Ephesus was actually quite a large city, had about a quarter million residents, and that was very large uh, at that time. In fact, the ancient city of Rome wasn't much bigger than that at that time. Uh, Ephesus was known as the mother city of Asia, and it was very wealthy because it was a port city, kind of like Vancouver. But Ephesus was really seen as Uh, a university town kind of thing, a center of learning, a center of education. And just because of its geographical location, I don't have the map to show you this, it happened to be uh, the city through which most of the major land routes went through. And so that helps trade, that helps uh, business, and all of that that comes with that. Let's talk about the spiritual background of this ancient city of Ephesus. Well, let me just put it to you that Ephesus was a spiritual mess. It was ugly. It had within it, in this city, one of the seven wonders of the world, which was the temple of Artemis. You can see uh, the the remnants of it to this day. There it is. And the goddess uh, Artemis was the goddess of fertility. And you can only imagine what comes along with that. There's just all kinds of inappropriate stuff going on, um, and, and that was normalized in that culture. of A lot of that is normalized in our own culture today, very similarly. But Ephesus was a city fascinated with the occult, fascinated with magic and all that came with it, and the cult and the sort of <coughs> the religion of Artemis and its influence and its belief and all its messed up ideas the, the, this cult or religion of Artemis it, it permeated all of life throughout this culture in that city. So it permeated your family. Uh, the 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 cult of Artemis permeated your your marriage and maybe your side relationship going on. It permeated your business and it permeated the economy because for you to to be a good business person in that city, you kind of had to be part of the cult, you know because it just, it just made business work a little more smoothly. Um, and that's just kind of how it worked back then. There's some background for you. More specifically, in the passage that we're looking at today in the first 14 verses of chapter 1, the title of this message is uh, four words, Redeemed to Showcase God. Redeemed to Showcase God. Um, why, why would we be redeemed? Why would be, we be rescued and saved by God it's really, for this purpose, to put God on display. Show him off to the world. Uh, let me explain with a bit of an analogy here. Uh, this may not work for you. A lot of us, I don't know if there's many classical music fans in the room. I won't ask you to put up your hands or not. I just assume that there's not many anymore. Um, but I happen to be one, and so just bear with me. Oh, there, Bruce is one. Okay, there we go. We've got one, Bruce and I. like, And Darlene. And, oh, Sharon. Okay. Oh, good, Lorraine. Awesome. Good. Okay, this will work for you. So let me just run with this. Classical music and orchestras. Here we go. Um, One of my favorite classical music pieces is Requiem by Amadeus Mozart. And this is just a brilliant, mind-blowing work of classical music. Uh, But let's imagine, if you will, let's imagine you and I and all of us decide to go down to the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra and wherever they go. I think there's an actual place that they go to that. I don't don't know what that is offhand. And they happen to be performing Mozart's Requiem one evening. And we are there to listen to this song being played by this orchestra. And there are countless musicians. There is countless uh, vocalists in the choir. And and all of these, this entire orchestra is being led by the conductor who's got his little stick doing his thing. And, And by the time this orchestra this massive team of people are done performing this exquisitely performed piece called the Requiem. You and everyone else there are, are, are in awe. You're just clapping your hands madly. And you say, that's amazing. That's incredible. Those vocalists were outstanding. Those, those musicians were amazing. That orchestra, that choir, the whole that everyone there, they deserve full credit. For making such beautiful, captivating music. Now, let me ask you, are you right to say this? Are you right to say this and to give the orchestra full credit? No, no, no. Wrong answer. Because who was the one and the only one who wrote Requiem? Mozart. Who heard all the instrumental parts and all the vocalist parts in his head before any of the world ever heard this song, before anyone performed this piece of music. One person, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. No Mozart, no Requiem. No Requiem, well then no orchestra playing Requiem, no choir singing Requiem. I'm not, I'm not saying that the, the, the orchestra and all its performers, and, and they're, they're very talented, and I'm not saying that they're not important, but what I am saying, let us give credit where credit is due. Let's give it to Mozart. And in a much more way, you, me, us, Mercy Hill Church, the universal church, we were saved, we were rescued by God to showcase us to say, look how, look how good these people are. Look how loving they are. Look, look at all the good that they're doing at the Cloverdale kitchen and coldest night of the year. Look at all the good that they're doing in our community. It's amazing. Were we saved and rescued and transformed by God to to put us on display, to give ourselves credit and just, way to go, me. Way to go, church. We believe in Jesus. We've been saved by Him. Look Look at how good we're doing now. No, of course not. No, 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 no. If you take God, you take Christ and His plan out of the picture, well, none of us, None of us are making beautiful spiritual music. No, we are, we are not. We, none of us are displaying the beautiful character of God, the beautiful grace of God, the beautiful power and life change uh, that God makes in our lives. Only God can manifest all of that in us, his church. So he gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. He is the one who gets showcased here, you see. Not us, not me, not you. And this is the key purpose that we see for the church at large and for us as a local church. We were saved, we are transformed, we are rescued in order to show God off to the world, to showcase to the world how great, how good, how loving, how merciful, how kind, how awesome God is. All right, let's transition. We're going to look at this more more in detail. I want us to begin initially with verses 1 and 2 of that passage. If you have chapter 1 of Ephesians in front of you, it probably helps a little bit. And the first thing I want to say is what we see in verses 1 and 2 is Paul's very customary greeting and opening that he gives in all of his letters to basically set things up, set the table. And in this greeting, he clarifies who he is, that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Now, why would he say, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will? It's really to show his authority. He he wants you to listen and here, what he's writing, you know, Paul himself is a capital A apostle. He's on the same level of authority as the 12 disciples slash apostles of Jesus because he had a personal encounter with Jesus. And because of that personal encounter, that personal training, and that personal call from Jesus, he has special authority. And so he's saying, I'm a capital A apostle of Jesus. Listen up here. i got a message from God to give to you. That's why we should listen to Jesus. uh, Paul, saying these things. Then Paul talks about grace and peace from God the Father and God the Son. What is grace? Grace is unearned favor. It's the saving and the transforming power that comes from God through faith in Jesus. Then peace, what is peace? Peace is the opposite of war. Okay? And so, yes, formerly, before we became Christians, we were opposing God. We were at war with God. We opposed Him. We didn't want Him. Didn't want to follow Him. Didn't want to trust Him. But then we heard the Gospel. God led us to Himself. Drew us to Himself. We heard about the love of God in Christ. We were cut to the heart for our own sins. We were convicted. And then we responded. We repented of our sins. We believed in Jesus. We were baptized. Now there's no more war. War's over. Peace. No more opposing God. Just a healthy, peaceful, life-giving relationship with God through Christ. What a wonderful reminder that Paul... Gives us here like grace and peace that come to us from God the Father and God the Son. That's good stuff to remember. Let's move on to verses three and four, if you have verses three and four in front of you. Uh, and these verses have within them words that are lofty, that are poetic, that are just majestic. Paul says, Let us bless. God. He's saying, actually, let's worship God here. Let's get our focus on God here. And now why would he say, let us bless God? It's because God has blessed us, and he's blessed us far beyond anything we deserve. God's given us, get this, he says, Paul says, he has given us every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Jesus. Now, what are these spiritual blessings that God gives to us through Christ? It would include a lot of things. It would include forgiveness of our sins. We're now clean in the sight of God. It also includes God's, uh, he gifts us and gives to us his indwelling Holy Spirit to live live within us. And he gifts us that Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, at conversion. In addition, it includes our eternal life in the new heavens and new earth that God promises in our future. It includes all the spiritual gifts that come to us uh, by the Holy Spirit when he, when he, uh, indwells us, and he gives us gifts to to serve him and, and serve other people in our church family, like leadership, like teaching, like uh, pastoring, like hospitality, mercy, <coughs> encouragement, and so on. I don't know if you're getting a sense of how generous God is, and he's generous to such undeserving people like, like, like me, like you, like us. It's amazing. Let's move on. Verses 4 to 6, if you see verses 4 and 6 there. Paul talks about how, this is interesting. God chose you, Christian. God chose us, Mercy Hill Church. And he chose us when? Before the foundation of the world. In other words, before God made anything that we see here today, before God made anything in the universe at all, God had you in his mind. He was thinking about you before he made anything. He was thinking about me before he made anything. He was thinking about all of us before he made anything. We were an idea in God's mind before he made anything in creation. Okay? And he was thinking about us. And you know what he was thinking about in reference to you, in reference to me, in reference to our church? He was thinking about how you would later become his beloved child, his beloved son, his beloved daughter, that we would become his kids. He was thinking about that. You know, we think about, and some of us maybe sort of tried to plan having a family and having kids, and you were thinking about, oh, it's going to be great having kids, and of course you weren't thinking about the diapers and the vomiting and everything else, but, you know, there's an idea in your mind, and, and sometimes that doesn't happen for us, and that's very, very tragic, of course, But it's an idea. Well, well, God knew with specificity. He was thinking about you and how you would become one of his adopted kids. Now, what kind of uh, children did God foresee in his mind before creation was even made that we were going to be like, that his kids were going to be like? Paul says he had you in mind as being holy and blameless, made clean from sin, totally, fully forgiven forevermore. But the thing is, why would God choose us before he made anything to be holy and blameless before him. Remember the the title for today's sermon. Redeemed to showcase God. So God chose us to enter into his own family as his own uh, adopted holy kids. Why? Verse 6, for the praise of his glorious grace. For the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, you see, what God is interested in God is interested in in showing off to the world how good and how gracious and how loving he is. That's what he's all about. That's what he's all about. There's no one more beautiful than God. He just wants to show off his beauty to the universe and to to the world through us. What a privilege. And that leads us to number one in our notes. Are you hanging in there, by the way? It's, It's warm in here, and usually with heat comes napping. And so good luck with that. Uh, and then you've got to listen to a droning voice. Oh, this will be interesting. Number one is simply, by God's grace, we were made to become God's chosen adopted children for his praise. That's what I've been saying for the last five minutes. Let me uh, illustrate this a little bit by talking about the time and the age 2,000 years ago in which Paul lived. And that age and that culture was predominantly uh, a Roman culture. Rome was sort of the, the superpower of the day. And very often in Roman culture, 2,000 years ago, it was common for wealthy couples who were unable to have children, they would adopt a child or children. Now, why would a wealthy, well-to-do Roman couple adopt a child? They would do it because they were very interested. It was a big deal that they needed their family name to carry on. And in connection with carrying on the family name, uh, was for that family, with that family name, to maintain ownership of their property, to maintain ownership of the businesses. uh, In other words, they were very interested that we need to maintain our family legacy so that it carries on and it carries on and it carries on for generations. That was a big deal in that culture. I think it's very often a big deal for ours as well in some cases. Now imagine that you're the kid, you're the poor orphan. Maybe your parents passed away, maybe you're living on the street, You've got, you've got nothing. You've got no parents. You've got no family home. You've got hardly any clothes. You've got not enough food to eat, certainly. You've got nothing. And you've got no future, no prospects. I mean, it's not looking good for you as an adopted kid, maybe living on the street in Roman ancient times. But then a wealthy Roman couple notices you. They actually legally adopt you. They take you into their own family as their own child as their own adopted kid. And in so doing, they gift you and they give you a new family name. So now your last name is Kuykendall for example. And they give you a new hope and a future inheritance with that new family name. I mean, you're in. Through this adoption you've got this precious gift of a new life and a new hope and a new future. A new everything. And so it is. For you, Christian, for us is Mercy Hill Church. Uh, the NIV Zondervan Study Bible explains it well, and it says, All believers, male and female, who receive the spirit that brings about adoption, acquire a new status with its accompanying privileges and responsibilities. We are no longer obligated to our old father, the devil. And that's a bad dad. I mean, he redefines bad dad, let me tell you. A lot of us maybe have had bad dads. I mean, the devil is the worst dad the worst spiritual father anyone could ever have, but before we we trust in Christ, that's dad, whether we know it or not, that's dad. And God rescues us from that dad when we meet Jesus. So in Christ, we have so much more now. We're like that adopted Roman kid. We got more hope. We got more, more life. We got more love. We got more tenderness. We got more meaning, more purpose, all because of God's rich grace that he showers on us. All this undeserved favor. I didn't you didn't do anything to, just to earn this favor. But you're in now because he, choose, he chose you in advance before creation to be made holy and blameless like he is. To make us holy and blameless. That was the whole purpose, that he would forgive us our sins through Christ. And he makes us holy and blameless for what another purpose so the world sees us and they see the pieces of work we once were. And and then they, they start seeing the changes that God's making in our lives, and they're seeing the old Kurt versus the new Kurt. And believe me, I'm still a piece of work. I think you are too, actually. But compared to your former life, it's it's a striking difference. And people see that difference, and they're like, only God could do that with that guy or that woman. And he gets the worship when you are living a more holy life, when you are blameless, your sins are forgiven. That's how good and merciful and great and gracious the God of the universe is towards us. That's how it works. Isn't this this amazing? So let me close point number one by repeating it. By God's grace, we were made. This is why we exist. It's why we're breathing. It's why the, the heart is pumping. We were made for this, to become God's chosen adopted children for His praise. For His praise. Let's move on to verses 7 to 10, if you have 7 to 10 in front of you. Paul talks about, how in Jesus, we receive redemption through his blood. So the blood of Christ was spilled on the cross. <coughs> Spikes driven through his hands and his feet, blood was pouring out. Crown of thorns crushed upon his head, blood pouring out on his, on his head. Spear driven through his side into his heart sack, blood and water pouring out of his body. This was the blood that atoned for our sins, and this was the blood of God that atoned for our sins. Only the blood of God. The God-man Jesus could atone for our sins. And through that blood that was shed for us, we are now swimming. We are now awash in the grace of God, this unmerited favor, undeserved favor. And he lavishes this grace and this this favor upon us. And it's it's just such a beautiful thing. But I want to talk about and focus on the word redemption. Uh, It's mentioned in verse, I don't know which verse it is, but 7 to 10 in there somewhere. I think it's verse 7. And what does redemption mean? What does it mean to be redeemed? In short, redemption is all about when you are ransomed or you're rescued. You're rescued. Let's say your kid falls down a well, and this happens sometimes, or an animal, and that child or animal is is taken out of the well. They are rescued. They are redeemed from the slavery of that well, if you will. This is not unlike redemption. The most poignant example in the Bible, outside of redemption in Christ, is Moses, God using Moses to lead God's people out of 400 years of abusive slavery in Egypt. And God uses Moses to take them out. And they are rescued and they are saved. They are redeemed from that horrible slavery situation. Well, in like manner, in a much greater way, God has redeemed us through Jesus, the much better Moses. And we were in slavery to, to sin and addiction And enslaved, enslaved to death with no future in front of us, enslaved to evil as well. He rescued us from all of that. Then in verses nine and ten, let's move on. Paul talks about God's ultimate plan for the universe, and it is big. Let me tell you, this is a big plan. You know, we hear about all kinds of plans in our culture. Like you should live for this cause, you should live for that cause, you should be all about this, you should be all about that. We have all these voices saying, you, you know, give your life to this. But this is the biggest plan. This trumps all those plans, and some of those plans, by the way, that the world wants us to be involved in are not necessarily bad, but they're not the biggest plan, which this is, and let me explain what this biggest plan is. God's plan for the universe is centered on Jesus, and it is it is a plan that will culminate, that will come to a head and come to an end in Jesus and all things Things in heaven, things on earth, Paul says, all animate things, all even inanimate things. Everything will be united in in Jesus, brought under his his authority. And I'm going to go back to the Zondervan NIV study Bible. It nicely explains this again. And uh, let me quote this. Quote, unite all things. Now, there's a Greek word that means unite all things and it's anakephaleo I think and this is, uh, this is the, the New Testament was originally Ephesians was originally written in ancient Greek that's why the Greek term and this is a significant term that conveys three emphases in this context so we're trying to understand how everything is united in Christ okay number one Christ is the head or ruler King of kings Lord of lords number two Christ sums up or brings things into a coherent and meaningful whole and three Christ restores harmony in a universe that has come into chaos. Just watch the news. You'll see the chaos there. And it's why is there chaos in our world, in the universe? It's because of sin, human sin. In essence, the content of this mystery is <coughs> God's will to sum up and unify all creation, both the animate and the inanimate, under Christ's headship. And that leads us to point number two in your notes. Simply, God's plan for the universe is to unite all things in Christ. God's plan for the universe is to unite all things in Christ. I'm going to try to explain this a bit more by speaking about... It was somebody's a historical figure's birthday this last week. Anyone know who that historical figure is? Robbie Burns? Oh, was it? Martin Luther King Jr.? No, well, he may have been. Anybody else? <laughs> Winston Churchill, yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite historical figures, and quite a guy. And as you may know, uh, Churchill was was basically a. I might get in trouble for this, but I think he might have been a terrible prime minister in times of peace, but in times of war and conflict, the greatest. Maybe one of the greatest leaders ever. And, And Churchill shone in times of war and chaos and what the situation was. During the Second World War, Hitler was making his advances on Britain. He had pretty much conquered most of Europe already by that point, and now he's picking on (coughs) Britain and Great Britain. And Churchill, during that time of opposition from Hitler, uh, (coughs) he united the nation against Hitler. Churchill strongly defended and protected the interests of Britain. Churchill really helped kind of define reality. He's like, because the problem was, other prime ministers before him didn't think Hitler was so bad. They thought, maybe he's okay. Maybe he's not as dangerous as we think. Churchill came on the scene. He's like, no, he's, he's worse than we thought. You know, he defined reality. And he helped make sense of all that was wrong. And how Britain could, could as a nation, defend themselves against Hitler. And not just defend, but with, with other, like Canada, like the United States, other nations. By the grace of God, we defeated Hitler. Okay. And all Britain became really united and victorious under the leadership of Winston Churchill, but in a, in a much greater way, much bigger way. You know, Jesus, he serves as our ultimate leader. He, he is our King of kings. Jesus is our Lord of lords. I mean, there's no one greater, bigger, more authoritative in the universe than Christ. And Jesus us—he gives us hope over the chaos in our broken world. Jesus helps define reality. He helps us make sense of our broken world, and He rescues us from the sin and the curse of sin that taints our world. And the reason that we all exist, the reason that we are breathing, the reason that your heart is pumping blood in this moment, it really comes down to, it's, it's because of Jesus. God's plan from the very beginning was to unite all things in His Son to redeem and to rescue the world from Satan, sin, and death. And the way that God rescued us was the story of the gospel. Jesus came, and he came because God the Father in love sent his one and only Son to leave heaven, to take on human flesh, to become the God-man. And becoming the God-man meant he would be our perfect representative, and Jesus during his lifetime lived perfectly for us, lived our perfect life in our place. Jesus then, when it came to the time of sacrifice, died for our sins in our place as our perfect sacrifice. Only God dying on the cross and his his blood being shed on the cross could effectively take away the world's sins if we would trust in him. And that's what Jesus did. He died. God died for us. Three days later, after his death, after, after Jesus was buried, he rose from the dead and he defeated Satan's sin and death for us and he arose our conquering Savior. Now, through that gospel, through what Jesus did, He's bringing all of his followers, all of his adopted kids together under his reign and rule, and it will last forever. What a plan. What a future. We get to be a part of this because we're in Christ. And if you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet an adopted kid of God, you're not a child of God yet, don't miss out on the plan. Don't miss out on uniting yourself with Christ, the one who loves you more than any other. Don't miss out on this breathtaking rescue mission that God is, is working through Jesus. He's bringing order out of chaos. I mean, our our, our world is more chaotic than perhaps ever, ever before. And Jesus helps make sense of everything that's happening. He brings clarity. He brings hope. He brings meaning. He brings love out of hate, hope out of hopelessness, order out of chaos. Come to Christ, and let's have a conversation after the service or talk to a, a trusted Christian friend. All right. For the sake of time, I'm going to land this plane a little bit here, or try to. And uh, let me quickly summarize verses 11 to 14. If you see that in front of you, that's fantastic. Paul talks about the great inheritance. And maybe your your parents passed on, and you received some sort of inheritance, or an uncle, or an aunt, or a grandparent. Have you received an inheritance? And who who likes receiving inheritances? It's always a good thing, I think, unless it breaks up your family or siblings and causes fights. But anyhow, generally inheritances are seen as a positive thing. Well, Paul talks about the great, the ultimate inheritance, that God's adopted kids. Remember, we're part of God's family, so we get the inheritance. It's a good deal. We are joint heirs with Christ, and we receive this inheritance because of Christ. Then Paul connects this inheritance. Here we have this inheritance on one hand. He connects that inheritance with God the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity. And he says that when we believe this gospel, we were then sealed with the Holy Spirit. And this sealed spirit guarantees that we will possess the future inheritance from God. They're connected. So what does this mean? Here's the thing. In Paul's day and age, I want to talk about the sealing, being sealed with the Holy Spirit for a second if I might. In Paul's day and age, the idea of of sealing something, you would put a seal like on an agreement or on on an envelope or on a contract. And when you would put that seal on something, it would mean that you owned whatever that document was about. It indicated ownership, it indicated uh, protection for you as well. Interestingly, there's a couple of cases in the Bible where seals are put on people's foreheads, on God's people Ezekiel chapter 9 and then Revelation chapter 7. And a seal is placed upon the foreheads of God's people. I think we might have an illustration of what that may have looked like in Ezekiel's case. Now, why was the seal put on their foreheads for God's people? It was to to keep God's people safe and to keep them identified and to keep them protected until their rescue would come later from God. Isn't that cool? That's a good seal to have. Now, so it is with us Christians. We're his kids. Mercy Hill Church, we're part of the family of God, adopted kids. We believe in the gospel. And when we believed in the gospel, God deposited within us his Holy Spirit to then empower us for mission, to then empower us for uh, being transformed into the, omission, into the image of Jesus. But the Spirit was given to us, Christians, God's kids, as a seal, a figurative spiritual seal, if you will. And his Spirit is a real seal. It's like God's seal of approval. It's like God's stamp of approval on you. Isn't that cool? And he's saying, this kid, this child of mine, will absolutely, guaranteed, receive my future heavenly inheritance, new heavens, new earth, with God and his people forever. That is, bam, that's guaranteed. That is sealed. They're sealed. They're in. Isn't that great? And that leads us to our final point in our notes, number three. God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, which serves as God's personal guarantee for us that our future inheritance is coming. I would speak more on that, but I think I better bring it to a close because, you know, it's been a bit of a long sermon. And I can't, there we go. I didn't even know what time it was until I got that sorted out. (laughs) Let's pray as we uh, now respond to God. Uh, We've looked at what he said to us. And let us just now ingest that and digest what he's saying to us that we might be changed. Lord, we come to the time of the Lord's Supper desiring to connect with you, desiring to, to be continue to feed on what we've learned in Ephesians 1 here. What a glorious, great plan that you have for us as your church family and for us individually. We don't deserve any of this. None of us measured up to your standards. None of us were good enough in your eyes. None of us were holy enough. None of us were talented enough. You know... It's all because of your grace that you lavished upon us, your love that you lavished upon us, and we are so grateful. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you went through with the Father's plan. You obeyed, and you lived our life, died our death, rose again, to make it possible for our sins to be forgiven, (coughs) to make it possible for us to to join your family. And so we come to the time of the Lord's Supper to remember and celebrate this precious gift that you've given us. Help us to examine ourselves in light of the gospel, to repent and and, and admit and confess any known sins that we're aware of, and just to leave those sins at the cross to receive your ongoing grace, forgiveness, and rescue from those sins in us. Just cleanse your people today. Help us to be who we are, to be the holy and blameless people that you've made us to be in Christ. Through Christ we pray. Amen.